It is true. And I don't, when I say this is true, I don't mean that it's bad. I just mean it's true that a big portion of our lives is spent trying to feel safe, trying to feel secure. We're trying to ensure security for our family or for our friends, our loved ones. Uh, we want income security. We want food security. We want to know where we're going to live. We don't want to just be ping-ponging around. We want to know that if we're unemployed, we could continue to have a way or money saved so that we could continue to live life. We want to be sure that, uh, if possible, uh, our kids are provided for after we die. We want, to, we want to find ways to do that. And so much of what we do is trying, attempting to feel secure in this world. And I don't think that's, an, it's not an unfair thing. It's good to feel secure. It's good to, to, to know in what or in whom to be confident. I don't want my kids to be scared to be in my presence. I want them to feel comfortable in my presence. I want them in a, in a difficult moment to find me. I want, th- I want that. And so I, I, don't, I don't say that to go, oh, man, all you want is your own safety, you know, poo-poo on you. That's not the point. It's just that that's a way of life. In fact, as I was preparing this sermon a couple of weeks ago, Google popped up in my you know, Gmail, and it said this, we protect your privacy. Your email content is kept safe and secure and never used for any ads purposes. That's what I got from Gmail as I was preparing. No joke, as I'm preparing this manuscript, Google wanted to remind me that I feel safe and secure, which, right? Uh, the need of that, though, to feel confident, comfortable, safe, protected, it's constant. It's constant. We want to feel that way. We want to feel protected. Dad's in the room. You probably want to be a protector. You want to take care. You want to provide. You want to be sure that people can be provided for. That's awesome. Nobody I know is actively looking for insecurity. Nobody I know is actively looking for instability. You know what I want? Less security and less stability. That's what I want. And I don't mean risk averse. I just mean no one's going around going, you know what I want to do? Buy and sell a house every week. I want to change my jobs every three days. Like that's what I want to do. Just kind of live in this constant state of roller coaster. That's awesome. Now if that is your style, you might want to ask your family, if you have one, uh, how they feel about it. Because they may hate your fly by the seat of your pants style. But regardless of where you stand and how comfortable you are holding on to, grabbing, finding security, it's temporal. You might get 30, 40, 50, 60, 70 years of security out of your temperament, and then you die. My question would be for you then, what kind of security are you ensuring? Because... When we die, we go before the Lord. And much more important than ensuring that our kids' every need is met after we die is ensuring that we can eternally be with the Lord. 
that, that, that we can walk with him and, and be with him and recognize him and, and serve him and worship him for all of eternity. Now, you know, if you're with us, that we're talking about the plagues. The plagues that the Lord brings upon Egypt as a part of delivering his people from their slavery in Egypt to give them to a land that he promised centuries beforehand. So we know, you know well, what in the world does, does security have to do with the plagues? Well, there's something going on in the plagues, especially highlighted in 4, 5, and 6, that reminds us of God's protection and provision of his people. 4, 5, and 6 highlight this. It's not that it doesn't happen in 7, 8, 9, and 10, or 1, 2, and 3, but it highlights what the Lord is doing and how the Lord is protecting his people, Israel, the Hebrews, during these plagues. Now remember the first three? There's that introductory sign where Aaron's staff swallows up the staffs of, the snakes of, of Pharaoh's magicians. Then in plague one, the Nile turns to blood, and we saw that God moves so that you may know his power. In the plague of frogs, we see that God is sovereign even to the minute that, that when Moses goes, yeah, Pharaoh, we can end this, you tell me when. And the Lord intercedes on behalf of Pharaoh, and the Lord ends the plague when Moses prays. In plague three, the gnats or the mosquitoes or the lice, we see that even the unbelieving magicians say in that moment, clearly this is the Lord. Clearly this is the Lord. So, today I want us to look at but a few aspects of this passage and see what is going on. What we're going to see is God's protection of his people. And we are going to see God's judgment on not his people. Right? So he's protecting his people while he's bringing judgment on Egypt. And we're going to see in plague six that final phrase that we had spoken of where the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart. So we see God's protection of his people. And then in plague six, we see this language of the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart. And we're going to see both of those things today. And we're going to just, it's going to be kind of looking at this going, all right, I'm not going to talk just specifically about plagues four, five, and six. But what is happening there that God is doing that, that applies to how he saves and how he moves? So we're going to be in Exodus chapter 8, verse 20. We're going to go all the way through chapter 9, verse 12. That God in his mercy both protects and hardens to accomplish his purposes. You ready for that? Yeah. All right. Let's do it. Starting in 820. The Lord said to Moses, rise up. Early in the morning, remember plagues 1, 4, and 7 have an early in the morning theme. And present yourself to Pharaoh as he goes out to the water. And say to him, thus says the Lord, let my people go that they may serve me. 
Or else, if you will not let me go, I will send swarms of flies on you and your servants and your people and into your houses and into the houses of the Egyptians. And they shall be filled with swarms of flies and also the ground on which they stand. Does not sound fun. But on that day, listen to this, I will set apart, mark off, protect the land of Goshen where my people dwell, so that no swarms of flies shall be there. That you may know that I am the Lord in the midst of the earth. Thus I will put a division between my people and your people. Tomorrow this sign shall happen. And the Lord did so. There came great swarms of flies into the house of Pharaoh and into his servant's house. Throughout all the land of Egypt, the land was ruined by the swarms of flies. Then Pharaoh called Moses and Aaron and said, go sacrifice to your God within the land. Remember, they were supposed to leave. Within the land. But Moses said, it would not be right to do so, for the offerings we shall sacrifice to the Lord our God are an abomination to the Egyptians. We worship differently. We're not going to do that. We're not fools. If we sacrifice offerings abominable to the Egyptians before their eyes, will they not stone us? We must go three days' journey into the wilderness and sacrifice to the Lord our God as he tells us. So Pharaoh says, I will let you go sacrifice to the Lord your God in the wilderness, only you must not go very far away. Plead for me. Pharaoh's haggling. He's trying to negotiate. He's trying to remain in control, strike up a deal. However, Moses knows that no deal is to be made because his obligation is to the Lord. The Lord said, we must go and worship. So I'm not going to make a deal where we just stay here and worship. I'm not going to make a deal where we don't go too far. Later he's going to say, make a deal, but only the men can go. Keep the women and children back, right, so they come back. So Pharaoh keeps trying to negotiate. Remember, he's not a fool in the sense of he knows how to govern. So he's trying to negotiate and manage and use his power to do what he can, but it doesn't work. Moses said, Behold, I'm going out from you, and I will plead with the Lord that the swarms of flies may depart from Pharaoh, from his servants, and from his people tomorrow. Only let not Pharaoh cheat again by not letting the people go to sacrifice to the Lord. So Moses went out from Pharaoh and prayed to the Lord. And the Lord did as Moses asked and removed the swarms of flies from Pharaoh, from his servants, and from the people. Not one, not one remained. So just as quickly as those flies came into the land and covered everything, through Moses' intercession, the Lord removes everyone. Everyone. And that's interesting because in those moments, if there's a few remaining, you go, well, that was probably just nat- they naturally had to go somewhere. But now that they're all gone, they're all gone, that's interesting. You can't even find one. But, verse 32, Pharaoh hardened his heart this time also and did not let the people go. That's flies. How about livestock? The Lord said to Moses, go into Pharaoh and say to him, thus says the Lord, the God of the Hebrews, let my people go that they may serve me. 
For if you refuse to let them go and still hold them, behold, the hand of the Lord will fall with a very severe plague upon your livestock that are in the field, the horses, the donkeys, the camels, the herds, and the flocks. But the Lord made a what? What's that word? Distinction. The Lord made a distinction between the livestock of Israel and the livestock of Egypt. So that nothing of all that belongs to the people of Israel shall die. And the Lord set a time, saying, tomorrow the Lord will do this thing in the land. And the next day the Lord did this thing. And the livestock of the Egyptians died, but not one of the livestock of the people of Israel died. And Pharaoh sent, meaning he sent messengers. He wanted, he wanted to go check this out. He sent people. And behold, not one of the livestock of Israel was dead. In the plague of the flies, not one fly remains in the land. In the plague of the livestock, not one of the livestock dies. Not even of natural causes, right? No, there's no dead livestock there. They go and check it out. Nothing's dead. All their livestock is alive. But the heart of Pharaoh was hardened, and he did not let the people go. You guys know the theme of the plagues by now. You're getting it. This is moving us somewhere. This is set, headed to that tenth and final plague of the firstborn. But each of these builds on another. The plagues become more severe and more significant, and they affect, affect more parts of the land and the way in which they operate. Yet it's still not changing Pharaoh's heart. Plague six, boils, skin sores. And the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, take handfuls of soot from the kiln and let Moses throw them in the air in the sight of Pharaoh. It shall become fine dust over all the land of Egypt and become boils breaking out in sores on man and beast throughout all the land of Egypt. So they took soot from the kiln and stood before Pharaoh, and Moses threw it in the air, and it became boils breaking out in sores on man and beast. And the magicians, oh, here they come again. They didn't show up in plague four. They weren't there in plague five, but here they are in plague six. And the magicians could not stand before Moses because of the boils. For the boils came, came upon the magicians and upon all the Egyptians. That's, like, that, that's the comic relief portion of this passage where the, right, the, the writer's just going... Oh, yeah, and the magicians who were so powerful in plagues one and two, here in plague six, they're like, uh, can't even show up. Sorry, can't come to work today. Calling in sick, not going to make it because I have the same problem that you guys have. I can't get rid of these things. It's just not going to work. And so that's just kind of thrown in there, I think, for our recognition of, again, who is supreme. Verse 12 of chapter 9. Here it is. But the Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh, and he did not listen to them, as the Lord had spoken to Moses. So plagues 4, 5, and 6 show us something about the Lord. All the plagues show us something about the Lord. They show us his power. They show us that he is the one who is supreme. They show us that he can... Trump in every way any false god of this world. In fact, plague nine does this significantly when the land turns to darkness. We'll hear more about that next week. But the Egyptians worshiped the sun. Ra or Re was one of their significant gods. 
and for several days, the land of Egypt is dark. Is dark. Not a light. And so all of this is a statement on the power of God and the judgment that he is bringing upon Egypt for their slavery of God's people. But again, in 4, 5, and 6, we, we see things that are going on everywhere, but, but they're highlighted in this passage. And what we see is, first, we're going to take this in two parts, God's protection of his people from judgment. And then secondly, God's activity in the heart of Pharaoh. We're going to take both of these things, because both of these are going on in this passage and highlighted uniquely. Remember, Plague 6 is the first time we read about the Lord's activity. But it's not the first time the Lord said that this was going to happen. So 4 through 6, turn the heat up. Plagues 1, 2, and 3 affected the world around them and were a burden for the Egyptians. But now we see their livestock affected. Not just a nuisance. We see their livestock affected. We see their bodies affected, both them and their livestock. And we see that while all of this is coming upon the Egyptians, none of it happens to the Hebrews. We see this division, this distinction, this marking off, setting apart of God's people, even in the midst of God's judgment being brought on the land. We read God's power to protect his people, Israel, in that first plague. Verse 22, on that day I will set apart, right, we say something is holy, is it set apart, cut off, marked off. On that day I will set apart, this is 822, the land of Goshen where my people dwell so that no, no swarms of flies will be there. Verse 23, I will put a division between my people and your people. Tomorrow this sign shall happen. And the Lord did so. There became great swarms of flies in the house of Pharaoh, in his servants' houses. Throughout all the land of Egypt, the land was ruined by swarms of flies. Now the land of Goshen is set kind of off from city center of Egypt. But it has not, this isn't the first time it's shown up in the Bible. In fact, in Genesis 45.10, remember Genesis gets us into Egypt. The end of it is the story of God's preserving his people. And in 45.10, you read this, you shall dwell in the land of Goshen. You shall be near me. You and your children, your children's children, and your flocks, your herds, and all that you have. Goshen was on the eastern side of the Nile Delta. It was far away enough from it that it didn't affect the lives of the Egyptians directly, but also a population could begin to grow there. So that was, that was their spot. However, it was still in Egypt. Thus, we see here that God is protecting Goshen, not because Goshen is unique geographically. It's not like he just works with man-made boundaries. He protects the land of Goshen because his people are there. Not because it's Goshen. Not because it was really easy to mark off. Not because it had high walls. He protects the land of Goshen because his people are in the land. And his people were put there, brought into that land, all the way back in Genesis. God is 
setting his people up in a space, and he's protecting his people in that space all the way back in Genesis. In the plague of livestock, you see similar things. Chapter 9, verse 3, Behold, the hand of the Lord will fall with a very severe plague on your livestock that are in the field, the horses, the donkeys, the camels. Verse 4, But the Lord will make a distinction between the livestock of Israel and the livestock of Egypt, so that nothing of all that belongs to the people of Israel shall die. The Lord set the time. Tomorrow I will do this thing in the land. And the next day he did this thing. All the livestock died. Verse 7, Pharaoh sent. He wanted people to go see, check it out. Because in your heart you're going, right, there's no way this is only happening to us. There's no way this is only happening to us. And it is. The heart of Pharaoh was hardened and he did not let the people go. So throughout these plagues, we see, it happens with the boils as well. Even though Moses is at the epicenter of the boil, he's the one throwing the dirt up. He's doing this, and yet he's protected. In these plagues, we see the preservation of God's people, even in the midst of judgment. And this preservation reaches back to his promise to Abraham in Genesis chapter 12 that he is going to build a nation through this man whom he called out of a pagan worshiping family to establish through him a nation and through this nation All the nations of the world will be blessed. Again, we're going to refer to Genesis 12 all the time as we go through Exodus because that promise to Abraham gets us to why God is doing what he's doing even here. Is that his preservation of Israel in Egypt is to preserve for himself a people through whom the Messiah, Jesus, comes. And so all of this, even then, in this time, Roughly 1,400 years before the incarnation, God is working and moving to preserve his people so that the world, you and I, might be blessed. Now, if you've ever been, this happened to my grandmother's house one time. We were in Conroe, and it was raining in the front yard and not in the backyard. You ever, you ever seen that where like you're right on the line where it's raining on one side and not on the other and it's kind of cool and you're like, in the rain, not in the rain, in the rain, not in the rain. Like you just kind of bounce back and forth because it's a neat thing to see. A weather anomaly or the, you know, rain has to stop somewhere, starts and it begins, that's one thing. But to somehow protect an entire people from the death of livestock, from boils, from swarms, to protect an entire people from that, that, that's different than just seeing the rain stopping and starting somewhere. But even then, even though you might have seen at some point in time raining here and not raining here, I doubt you have seen anything like what's happening in Egypt. Now, there's a reason for that. That's because nothing like that has happened since. 
or to that point. It's even spoken of that way, like, you, like, like nothing you will have ever seen or will see again. And so this moment is unique. But isn't this idea not that we are in Christ preserved and protected from judgment? Romans 8.1, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. The judgment goes all the way up. Once it gets to your door, Christian, nothing. Nothing. No longer condemnation for those who are in Christ. Which then, now just flip it. There is condemnation for those who are not. So though there is no condemnation for those in Christ, there is condemnation for those who are not. We, though we don't see things like we might have read in Exodus 8 or 9 or 10 or 11 or 12, we don't see those or experience those in the same way. But we are protected from judgment. We are preserved. We are kept from wrath by a good and gracious God who gave us a substitute. And substitute becomes the theme of chapter 10, 11, 12, 13. It becomes the theme of the 10th plague, the consecration of the firstborn, and the death of the lamb and the blood on the doorpost so that those inside the house may not die. So that theme shows up strongly as we get to the 10th plague. But we just have to realize now, those in Christ are marked off, protected, divided, set apart from the judgment that is coming. Another passage that we can read about in the New Testament. The, the judgment that is coming on this world, the ultimate judgment before the new heaven and the new earth and everything made right again. There's this passage in 1 Thessalonians. For not only has the word of the Lord sounded forth from you in Macedonia and Achaia, he's uh, Paul's writing this to them, but your faith in God has gone forth everywhere so that we need to not say, need not say anything. For they themselves report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God. Verse 10, look at this. And to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who, what? Delivers us from the wrath to come. That the Christian is protected, is preserved, is not condemned, and does not face wrath. That is significant. But at the same time, there's this verse in the third, or I'm sorry, not the, it's the third today, it's the sixth plague, that can sometimes be troubling for us. And we see this language in chapter 9, verse 12. But the Lord, but the Lord hardened Pharaoh, the heart of Pharaoh 
and he did not listen to him as the Lord had spoken to Moses. Now, the plagues themselves are a sign of the evil and idolatry that is in Egypt. In them, we see God's hatred of sin and rebellion, and we see God's promise that he fulfills to deliver his people. This promise was given before Moses showed up on the scene. Now, in Exodus 7, 3 and 4, he has already said that he would harden Pharaoh's heart. Modern readers, and by modern readers, I mean us. This is something in in Bible interpretation that we have to settle in our hearts. Biblical authors are not concerned about your problems with the passages. They're not not trying to defend how you in 2021 are going to feel, and they're not concerned about your sentiments. Their response is to obey the Lord under the power of the Spirit, and write what the Lord has inspired. And so they don't feel compulsion to come to the defense of what is written. So this is what has to happen for us. In going to the scriptures, we need to recognize that they're not there just to make me feel good about what they say. That they're there to teach me about the Lord and show me what obedience to him looks like and, and, and give me my need, reveal to me my need for his grace as I recognize the gravity of my sin. And so as you read passages, because this happens when you read the scriptures, you go, I don't like that. Why did he say it like that? I wish that weren't the case. As you get into those things, you just have to realize biblical authors are not concerned about how a modern reader might hear or read something. And honestly, that's great. Because it gives us something that is constant. So as an aside, this is, this is still sermon time. It's not in you know, the manuscript. I didn't write it when Google was popping up on me. The... The fact that the scriptures can be trusted, that they're not there to try and make you feel good, that they're not trying to always answer every question that you might have, it's not their job, that gives me great confidence because it shows me that their truth is abiding, that it's enduring. It's not written for one culture, it's not written for one worldview. Meaning, meaning it's, not, it's not just going, hey, this is the American version. It is presenting to us over centuries the work of God to redeem this world through the person and work of Jesus Christ. And it uses Israelites, and it uses murderers, it uses tax collectors and sinners under the power of the Spirit, to show us the goodness of God. That thread of consistency, that truth for us, gives us the confidence that we need. I was listening to a podcast, I think it was yesterday, talking about, well, this is how you know, this is how you punish people who use words that are wrong, or say it like this, or do this, right? 
Um, and so he was talking about just the way in which you have to go. You all, we have to agree that certain things are good and certain things are bad. My question, my response always said is, who makes the rules? Who is the one who gets to say what is and isn't appropriate? A group of people in a room, a committee, the richest, the most powerful, the most educated, the least educated, who decides who decides what works and what doesn't? Well, the employers do, or the, these do, or the leaders do, or the governors do. And the reason that doesn't work, you guys have figured it out already because you've probably been disappointed in the inconsistency that can show up through that. The reason it doesn't work is because it's not enduring. There are things today that we would say absolutely gold that everybody should do that 150 years ago I doubt people would say the same thing about. That's why we always have to go back to the source, back to the source. What is going on? What is going on? Now, all of that to say, I haven't really talked about the hardening of hearts yet. Here we go. Next week's passage is going to highlight this more, but I want to go ahead and just read three verses from next week's passage in chapter 9, verses 15, 16, and 17. For by now I could have put, this is the Lord, for by now I could have put my, out my hand and struck you and your people with pestilence, and you would have been cut off from the earth. But for this purpose I have raised you up to show you my power, so that my name may be proclaimed in all the earth. You are still exalting yourself against my people and will not let them go. So you see in this passage an interesting interchange. You do see God's sovereign and overarching powerful activity and the fact that he does not let Pharaoh off the hook. For this reason, I raised you up and you're being stubborn still. Again, the biblical authors are not trying to give you a fully working theology of God's sovereignty and man's responsibility. They're not trying to give that to you. That's why the amount of books that you find on this topic has never ceased to be published. Everyone's trying to give you their answer, their take. And they always have a spectrum of views. And their view is always in the middle. Because it's the most mediating. Anybody who writes a book with a spectrum on it, they're always going to put their position in the middle because that's apparently the one that's always the best. We need a balanced view. No one thinks that anybody else's view is balanced, so they have to do it. So together... We hold two different truths revealed in Scripture. The absolute sovereignty of God. Absolute. That there's not ever a time where God goes, whoops, I did not see that coming. I did not know that was going to happen. I can control 99% of this. I'm powerful over 99%, but there's this 1% that I just, I'm stuck with. And I just have to respond to. It's absolute sovereignty of God that he does what he pleases to accomplish his purpose. That the God who creates the world with his voice can change or harden a heart with the same one. He needs no help and he knows what he is doing. And the second we see, our depravity. That a hundred times out of a hundred, we would do the wrong thing. Both of these are shown to us in the interaction between Pharaoh and Moses, but really Moses on behalf of the Lord. 
Both of these are there. Again, the authors are not trying to make it all make sense to you. They're saying, this is it. But what you can see is this. God is bigger than you. He's bigger than me. And he will not fit into our tidy little categories of fairness. In fact, this situation of the Lord hardening Pharaoh's heart shows up again strongly in Romans chapter 9. I'll just read verses 17 and 18. The Apostle Paul, a man who had killed Christians, let's remember that, murdered Christians and was on his way to do the same, who was radically saved by Jesus, he looks into the history of his people to speak about God's movement. He'll even say, I wish that I could be condemned so that my people would not be. So you can understand how he, he wrestles with that same thing. I wish this could happen so that this could happen, but it can't because I'm not the Lord. He is. And so you get to see these statements. Romans 9, 17. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this purpose I have raised you up. He's quoting what I just read from Exodus 9. That I might show you my power, or my power in you, and that my name may be proclaimed in all the earth. Because that's God's end game. A world filled with his glory. Verse 18. So then he has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. Which doesn't mean that it only happened in Pharaoh's instance. It just means Pharaoh is the most blatant. It's the one that we see the most clearly. But when he says, whomever he wills, it means whomever he wills. Which is why the Apostle Paul can say, I wish this could happen so that that could happen, but I'm not the Lord and he does what he wills. So the specific hardening of Pharaoh in Exodus 9 that we just read, verse 12, is then in Romans generally applied to all who don't believe. But the reasoning becomes the same, to show his power and his might and the riches of his glory to those whom he has saved. So he gives the reason. And in fact, in Romans, you can read it for yourself, find what he says, but Paul anticipates the objection. He anticipates the objection. It's one of the times in Scripture where there is a, I need to help you understand what's going on here. He goes, well, you're going to say, well, who can find fault? How can he find fault in us for who can, you know, who can uh, withstand his will? And he uses an Old Testament imagery, an image of potter and clay. And he says, the Lord can do what he wills because he's the creator of all that you see. And he spends a lot of time fashioning everything. He spends a lot of energy making objects that will be destroyed and objects that will not. And so what Paul is doing in that moment is he's saying, 
we need to understand our position here. And we are not above the Lord. And yet that is, for the American in the room, which is probably most, if not all of us, that's a hard truth for us to swallow because we want to be the creators of our own destiny. We want to be the ones who say, I did it, I accomplished it, I can do whatever I want, I can be whatever I want. And then we read a passage like Exodus and we read, for this reason I raised you up. You're like, wait a minute. Wait a minute. I would like to look back and say, I did it. The Lord did it. Now, I'm not saying in this, as we read these and we see God's protection of his people in Goshen, while the plagues come upon Egypt, the judgment comes upon Egypt, and the Lord's hardening of Pharaoh's heart so that he does not let them go, I'm not saying in that that you just are always going to respond to it with a big smile and be like, man, that is awesome. Some of you will. Especially as these concepts are kind of first explored in our hearts, there is tension. Often, because we're dealing with a way of life and a perspective on this world that we don't generally have. So the fact that we kind of meet it with resistance is not uncommon because we meet the Lord with resistance. And so I want to say a couple of things about what God has revealed in case we get really worried that we're somehow all robots. And the first is this. All that God is doing is not known by us. All that God is doing is not known by us. Even in this moment, all the ways that he has been moving, everything that he is orchestrating is not known. Deuteronomy 29, 29. In 2019, this was one of our memory verses, and it goes like this. The hidden things belong to the Lord our God, but the revealed things belong to us and our children forever, so that we may follow all the words of this law. So Deuteronomy 29, 29 shows us that there are things the Lord is doing that are the Lord's. But there are the things that he has revealed which are for us to joyfully follow with in obedience. And so Deuteronomy 29, 29 helps us go, okay, God is working something. So my responsibility is to not focus on what he hasn't revealed, but on what he has revealed. You know what he hasn't revealed? What you're doing after this. The next job you're going to have, when you're going to move. All those things that we want to like go to the Bible as a divining rod for. And be like, please tell me what I need to do. All those things are not there. It's like, hey, does God want me to do this or do that? I'm like, well, how about all the things we know God wants us to do? How are we doing there? How about all the stuff that he has said? All the stuff that he has spoken? All the truth that we're not living out? Could we, could, there's enough there for the rest of our lives. That I don't need to spend a lot of time working up what hasn't been revealed. But yet that part of us we really love, right? That's what Gnosticism in the early church was trying to do. Is go, oh, well you don't have the secret knowledge. That's alluring to us. The thing we can't realize is that God's not hiding from us. The hard thing for us is that he's actually not withholding. And that's so, so, so often how we feel in our relationships is, are you holding back? 
do you want to, is there something you're not telling me? And the Lord's like, nope. Everything you need to know, I have revealed. Everything you need to know. We read this just a week or two ago. His divine power has given us everything we need for life and godliness through his great promises. If there's no biblical author going, if only God had told us about this. So that's the first thing that we need to hold on to is that God is not hiding from us when he even, when we read Exodus 9 or Exodus 8 or Romans 9. Focus on what God has revealed. Secondly, specifically in regard to hardening and softening and mercy and not mercy. What he has revealed is that all who call on the name of the Lord Jesus will be saved. So you know what that means? I have no right nor responsibility to try and determine what the Lord is doing with you throughout all eternity. I don't need to go there. I don't need to deal in what I don't know. I need to deal in what I do know. And if the Lord has revealed that those who place faith in the Lord Jesus are saved from judgment and protected, just like the Lord protected his people in Goshen from the plagues, if I know that, then I don't need to try and figure out where you are. I don't need to try and figure out what God's going to do in your life in 5, 10, 15, 20, 25, 30, 35, 40, 100 years from now. That's not for me, and that's not for you. What is our responsibility as disciples of Jesus Christ? Keep pointing people to Jesus. Keep talking about him. Keep showing them how good he is. Keep showing them how he saves. Keep pleading with people to trust in the Lord for their salvation. Because what is true is that if you put your faith in Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins, you are forgiven. That's what's true. If you have confidence in what he's doing, you see it, you know, you recognize your need, you turn to him, you are protected, you are preserved, right? Like, you're, you're done. You're with him. That's the second thing. First thing is, let's not worry about what God hasn't revealed, let's focus on what he has. Secondly, in regard to our salvation, let's look at he has revealed that all who call in the name of the Lord Jesus will be saved. That's all right then. We're good. We recognize now what God's doing. Thirdly, we know this. That the work of the Lord Jesus to die for the sins of a rebellious and wicked people before they even knew of their need shows us that God is not robotically engaged with this world as if he is unconcerned with its outcomes. Right? He has put the ultimate skin in the game. So it's not like the deist who thinks that he just sets a watch and stands back and goes, all right, it's going to do its thing now. No. That God's investment in what he is working out throughout all of eternity had eternally planned to send the Son into the world to die for the sins of the wicked. And that shows us, even as we read these plagues and see of God's judgment and the hardening of Pharaoh's heart and the protection of Israel, even as we see these things, we recognize with the fuller revelation that we have in the scriptures that God is not unconcerned with outcomes. 
that he provided the way for all to believe. And so I say to you, as we recognize what we see in the plague of flies, where the Lord makes one people distinct so that they may know he is powerful, or in livestock, where he is now killing the livestock of Egypt and not of Israel, or the boils, where his people are not in pain, but the magicians can't show up in the room, is that in all of that, what can we do? Throw ourselves on the mercy of God. Run to him. In the same way that your children may run to you in a thunderstorm, run to him. Because he is the way that we are protected from judgment and all the consequences that go with it.